We're continuing a series uh, this week, a series called Judges. It's uh, uh, based on and it's out of the book of Judges in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn there, I'd encourage you to do that. We'll be in Judges chapter 6 and 7 today. And uh, we've been studying um, this period of time in the nation of history, or in the history of the nation of Israel. And so this is a period of time that comes following um, uh, when uh, Moses led the people out of the nation of, or out of Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt. And God led them out under the leadership of Moses. And then they were to um, move into the land of Canaan, which was the land that God promised them. Um, he promised this to Abraham, who was the, uh, the first one that God called out to build his nation out of. And so the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, all come from Abraham. And so Abraham, God made a covenant with him, and it involved three things. God said, I'm going to make you, uh, I'm going to give you a land or a place that will be your own. I'm going to make you into a people. I'm going to give you seed, which is offspring. And they said, I'm going to bless the world through you. And so God certainly um, gave them the land of Canaan and said, move into the land of Canaan. And there were Canaanites in the land. So why did God send the nation of Israel into a land that was already occupied to drive out um, or even destroy the people that lived there? Why would God do that? Well, we've been looking at through this series. The reason for that is that the Canaanites were descendants of Ham and Ham was one of the sons of Noah. And so uh, following um, coming off the ark, where Noah and his sons were to repopulate the earth. Ham did something very disrespectful to his father, which we covered a few weeks ago. If you missed that, you could go back and listen. But because of that, God said, your offspring, one of your children, one of your sons, which is Canaan, is going to live in wickedness before me. He's going to move away from following God, and he's going to pursue false gods, false idols, and he's going to lead the people that are uh, descendants of his to live in uh, disobedience to God. And so God actually uses the nation of Israel to pronounce judgment on that people because of their wickedness and their disobedience. And so, um, and so that's kind of the history of what's going on here. And so the nation of Israel is supposed to move into the land of Canaan and they move in under Joshua who followed Moses and they went into the land. They began to take the land. God did miracles, went before them, gave them victories. And yet, as we've discovered, the people of Israel fell short of accomplishing the mission God called them to. They didn't drive all the people out of the land of Canaan. And so what happened was the Canaanites, some of them, remained in the land. And because they remained there, they didn't convert to become uh, uh, Israelites or Jews and to worship the God creator God, the God of the Bible. They held on to and maintained their pagan practices and their, uh, their wicked practices and their false idolatry and, and false worship. And so they became an influence on the Israelites. And some of the Israelites, their children grew up and they married some of the Canaanite women, some of the Canaanite men, and they were influenced away from God and they began to worship and worship the idols and the false idols of the Canaanites and the practice their, um, their wicked behavior. This was an abomination to God. And so in the book of Judges, we see after the death of Joshua, there is no prominent leader in Israel. And the Israelites are pulled away and drawn away to worship the Canaanite gods and follow the Canaanite practices. And so God, because of his love for them, his desire to be connected to them, allows them to go under seasons of oppression. 
And so he would allow a king, a pagan king to come up, a pagan ruler who would take, would oppress the Israelite people and put them under pressure. And this time of persecution was to get them to turn back to him. And so their hearts would turn back to him. And so um, just like when I used to wrestle with my dad, uh, my dad would finally get me pinned down, right? And he'd say, cry uncle, give up. And so the nation of Israel, pretty hard-headed, pretty determined to do the wrong thing. But when God allowed them to live under this pressure, this oppression, eventually they would cry out to God, save us, this hurts. And so God would send a savior. He would send a judge to rescue them. We've looked at Ehud in this series and how Ehud became a military leader, a man of God who was able to rescue the Israelite people from oppression. And then last week we looked at Deborah, who was a prophet and a judge over Israel. And she was used to help bring Israel out of oppression to the Canaanite king, King Jabin and his general um, Sisera, who were oppressing the Israelite people. And as we move on in the book of Judges this week, we find that there were 40 years of peace following Barak and Deborah. And after 40 years of peace, the Israelite people once again returned to their sin patterns and their practices. They moved away from God and they did evil again in God's sight by following the Canaanite religions and the Canaanite lifestyle. And so we're going to see God this week raise up another judge after seven years of oppression to once again save the Israelite people. And this judge you may have heard of before. Um, he has a little more familiar name. Maybe you've heard him preached on before, studied him in Sunday school. But he's a man by the name of Gideon. And so Gideon is our hero today. Um, he does not see himself as a hero, though. Uh, in the book of Judges, we see this cycle of rebellion sin against God, and then God puts the Israelite people under oppression. He judges them and allows them to feel the pain of their sin, and then um, they repent or they turn to God and cry out for help, and then he rescues them. Um, when I was a kid, I remember learning about this in this book, the cycle that the Israelite people went through. And I remember thinking, man, I, as I grow up, I don't want to follow their example. I don't want to live in that cycle. I'll admit, though, sometimes I have. <laughs> Maybe you have, too. Our problem is rebellion. Our problem is rebellion against God. We're drawn towards the things in this world, and we're drawn to them, and we want to engage in them. A definition of rebellion, maybe a good one, is this, reserving for myself the right to make the final decision. Okay, God, I know what you want me to do. I know how you want me to live, but I'm going to reserve the right to make the final decision about what I'm going to do in a given situation. The problem with that, folks, is that we have a tendency too often to make the wrong decision. We follow our emotions, we follow our desires, we follow what the people around us are doing, and yet the Bible says that we have been called out of the world we live in. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you put your trust in Jesus, then uh, the Bible says that you've been bought with a price because Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, he lived among us, he performed miracles among us, proving that he was God, and he died on the cross. And the Bible says that death paid for the penalty or paid the penalty for your sin. And so the Bible says we're, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. If we've trusted in Jesus, we belong to God. We're literally, we've been bought by him. He paid the price to buy us out of sin and out of destruction so that we could be saved, so we could live for him. 
Israel once again goes back to their sin patterns. I know there's a couple ways this happens. 40 years where they've been following God and they've lived under, uh, you know, lived out from underneath oppression and they start to feel pretty good again. Things are working well. They're pretty happy with how things are going. And again, the influence of the Canaanites is all around them. Sometimes it happens this way in our world. Maybe uh, a, y- a young man, an Israelite boy, raised in a good Jewish home, he is attracted to a Canaanite girl and he says, well, dad, I'd, I'd like to marry her. And dad says, well, you're not, she's not a, a Jewish girl. You know, we're, we're not supposed to intermarry. Yeah, I know dad, but I love her. She loves me. It feels so good to be with her. But dad, she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to do a Jewish wedding. I mean, we need to honor what uh, her family's all about. And I know they worship gods. We don't, but, but dad, I really think we need to do a wedding that's going to make her happy and her family happy. I know this never happens in our world today, but it happened maybe back then. And so now you have this pull, this influence away from God. And all of a sudden, at the wedding, maybe they're worshiping or doing practices to Baal instead of to the one true God. The Israelites, whatever it was that moved them away from their worshiping the one true God to worshiping other gods, it happened. And after 40 years of peace, they once again went back to these practices. Here, here's what I know. I don't know how they did it or what influenced them towards it, but they did. And here's what I know, that that decision or those decisions as a people put them on a path to destruction once again. Because sin only brings pain and destruction. Judges chapter 6, let's read the first six verses to kind of get the context here. This is what it says, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. The Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes coming with their livestock and tents were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. When we choose to allow sin into our lives, into our homes, to influence our families or ourselves, the places where we have influence, when we allow these things to come in, we're inviting only pain and destruction. Doesn't seem like it at first. In fact, sometimes we think it might sound like a good idea. See, the truth is, as human beings, we have a really dangerous trap for us, a dangerous practice the Bible actually warns us about. This is the danger of us trusting and using our own human wisdom to decide what to do. In Proverbs 14, verse 12, it says, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. The problem is, as human beings, when we use our own wisdom, our own reason, 
which sounds good to us. It sounds like a good idea. And yet the Bible tells us that if we follow our own reason, our own wisdom, the end of that path is really just death and destruction for us. Dan Howard, who's one of our elders who prayed here at the end of our time, he's been talking about recently the danger of relying on human reason. We can believe our human reason. We can trust our own determination about what to do. We, and listen, it's tempting because we're all intelligent people, right? We're all intelligent people. And so we look at the world around us and we start to figure out how life works. We start to figure out how things work. And then we develop uh, uh, ideas about what to do. Well, if this happens, well, this is what I need to do to create the outcome I want. And it works. It does work. <laughs> the problem is it doesn't include God. And because of that, it ends up being faulty. One of the ways that we can think about this, considering the Israelites and perhaps how they ended up in a position where they were worshiping once again the Canaanite gods, practicing things that were abhorrent to God. They ended up doing that. How did they get there? Well, as I said, maybe their children started to influence them. And one of the lines of human reasoning that can guide us, even as parents, grandparents, is the idea that if we push back on our kids, the direction they're going, it may seem wrong, it's not right. Well, you're making, um, you're making uh, um, allowances here, you're taking steps in the wrong direction, but we're worried that if we stand up and push back, maybe we'll push them away. And then will end up, leaving us, rejecting us, which we're very fearful of. And they won't want, want to have anything to do with what we're doing, with what we believe. And so for that reason, we get fearful of really taking a stand with our kids. You know, um, not, I'm not about um, pushing our kids away. And you can do that. The Bible tells fathers not to exasperate their children. So as fathers, you certainly have the ability to push your kids away by how you treat them. And that's not what I'm talking about, but we can make a step in the wrong direction too far where we're afraid even to say, hey, that's not the right direction. That's not where you should be going. To even work to um, guide our children's lives. You know, one of the things that, um, that I sort of lucked out on as a parent, just based on the timing of when my children were born, is that these little... Um, computer devices that all of us have and carry around. You know, they didn't come along until my kids were a little bit older. And so I've told you this, but my oldest child, I mean, cell phones were around, you know, but, but they were just phones. Remember that? I know. I'm really old. <laughs> I'm really old. I remember when cell phones were just phones. But, um, but, you know, as my kids were coming up, my oldest really, uh, you know, we held off on getting her a phone and she didn't really, you know, she wasn't crying for one until she was like 14. And that's really when things started to change. And so because of that, that became the rule for the rest of my kids, which my youngest did not appreciate because I think her, but her friends, I think they were born with cell phones. I really think so. I don't know a time when they didn't have them. And so it's like, wow, you know, she felt really gypped because she had to wait until she was 14. But, but to be honest with you, in hindsight, maybe that was a blessing. And maybe because we're starting to learn what cell phones do and what the creators of these devices are trying to accomplish in relation to our children. Maybe it was a good thing that they didn't have that option because if you're a parent now, I know you know this, but you know that the creators of these devices 
are trying to make your children addicts to them. You know that, right? You know that they're trying to create a dopamine response in their brain that produces a pleasure response when they push a button, when they answer something, when they post on social media. It feels good, and they're trying to make your children addicts to them. So I know you know this because you guys are on top of what's happening in the world, but the truth is you do have to address this infiltration, this attempt to get at your children's hearts and minds. Because I'll tell you a little secret, the people that run these companies, they're not really big fans of your belief system as a Christian and how you want to raise your children. In fact, they think you're a problem and that you're actually leading to the destruction and demise of our culture. And so they actually wanna get to your kids' hearts and minds around you and help connect them to their beliefs and their ideas and their value system. I know you're aware of this and you know that you have to address it. The infiltration of sin and of the outside culture moving in is a very real threat and we have to address it. And it's been this way for every generation. It's not a new battle, but there's new tactics being taken. We need to be careful of neglecting our spiritual lives. The truth is the reason that the world around us becomes attractive, the pull of sin becomes a draw, is because we've lost focus. We've stopped paying attention to our spiritual lives. We're not focusing our heart, soul, mind, and strength on loving our God. And so as we fade in our devotion to our God, then we're more susceptible to the temptations around us, the pull to do the things. Satan is really good and he doesn't attract us with things that aren't pleasurable, that we're not gonna enjoy. He draws us in with things that will be attractive and will pull our hearts and our emotions. And yet the answer is God says to stay focused on him, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We need to move past, as followers of Jesus, we need to move past just accepting a miracle from God. I've noticed, it's become, uh, I've become aware that there's a lot of us and a lot of Christians in this country that come to God for a miracle. A miracle is when God saves you. He rescues you. He forgives your sin. And so many people come to that place in their lives where they go, God, I need you. And they recognize the need for a miracle from God to be saved. But the problem is that's not where it stops. Jesus calls us to follow him. And instead of just settling for a miracle, we need to walk into healing. See, sin has harmful, harmful effects on us. There's, there's wounds that you have and I have because of sin. Because of our own choices to go against God's instruction and because of the, what other people do and the decisions they make. Those wounds, friends, have to be healed. You can't just accept the miracle of God and not walk into the healing that God wants to give you. God wants to give us and heal us from the effects of sin. And that is healing occurs when the harmful effects of sin in our lives are removed by God. And he wants to do that, but that takes us engaging in a process that we call sanctification. 
It's the aspect of our salvation where we become more like Jesus. And that takes effort. It takes uh, an attention to it on our part. We've got to make decisions to begin to follow Jesus and to begin to spend more time focused on our spiritual life and our spiritual development. And that means that instead of neglecting our church attendance, that we press into it more. Instead of neglecting attending Bible study or life group, we press into it more. Instead of neglecting reading our Bibles on a daily basis, we, we press into it more. The world teaches us we need to love ourselves more. But self-love is only selfish. We don't need more selfishness in the world. We have plenty of that. The Bible teaches us to empty us of ourselves and to take on Christ, to love God more. The answer the Bible teaches us is not just to love yourself more, it's to love God more. When you love God more, see, God changes you and, and transforms your heart and your mind so that your identity is not found in who you are alone. Your identity is found in who God says you are. It's so important that we make this transition. The effects of sin are devastating and you may be suffering the effects of your own sin or someone else's sin in your life. And I want you to know that God sees your struggle against that. He wants to bring healing into your life. There's no question God wants to heal you. He wants to see those wounds get healed completely. And when that happens, those devastating effects of sin fade away. We're able to rise above them and not live out of them. We're not as weak and sensitive to being wounded again. Satan knows if we have a wound that's unhealed, he can just jab it. He can just poke it, peel the scab off. And there it is all over again, that pain. God doesn't want us to live out of that pain. He wants us to live out of his power. No matter how you feel about the world around us, sometimes we see the encroachment of sin. We see the effects of sin. We, we just say, God, it doesn't even seem like you're doing anything in the world. It seems like sin and the devil and the world system is winning and that's just the way it is. But the truth is that God sees you as somebody different than you see yourself. He sees you as someone able to rise up and to take a stand in the world you live in against the encroachment of evil into our world. The truth is that you may feel weak in the spiritual battle, but God calls you, listen, God calls you a mighty hero. Judges chapter six, let's keep reading in verse 11. But then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. Gideon's looking at the real situation. He believes in God. He has a fear of God. There's no question. The reason he's been chosen in this moment is because he comes from a family that's God-fearing, that believes in God. The problem is he's lost 
his faith, he's lost the courage to believe that God is or could do anything. And so when the angel of the Lord comes to him, by the way, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, you know who that is? It's Jesus. So Jesus comes and says, Gideon, greetings, mighty warrior, God's with you. Gideon goes, sir, respectfully, if God was with us, then why are things so bad? Why is everything such a mess? Why is it that we're under such oppression? I've heard about what God did in the past, but I don't see God doing anything right now. Gideon was a good man. He was a faithful man. But he wasn't a strong leader. He wasn't an impressive person from an impressive family who was a natural leader in Israel. He was from an obscure tribe, not known very well, and he certainly didn't feel like a strong man. But God sees something in him that he doesn't see in himself. And the amazing thing, is that for Gideon to be a mighty hero and to be a a warrior who would lead Israel out from underneath the oppression of the Midianites, Gideon didn't need to be exceptional. He didn't need to be somebody impressive. Again, that's human wisdom. Remember what God told Samuel when he was looking for the next king, right? And he picked this little little ruddy, snotty-nosed little kid teenager, right? And David, the the youngest in the family, wasn't the most impressive. And God said, that's my man. And Samuel said, what do you mean? He doesn't look like anybody's going to be great. And God said, well, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God sees you and he sees something in you that you may not see in yourself. He sees someone that when surrendered to God, can see greatness occur around him or her. Gideon is hiding out from the Midianites. He's threshing grain, probably wheat. I don't know if you know about threshing grain, but typically you do it up on top of a hill where the wind blows. Now, if you're living around here, you don't need to be on top of a hill for the wind to blow, right? (laughs) It doesn't matter where you're at. You can't get away from it. But listen, in in their world, it was get up on top of a hill and throw the grain up into the air with all the chaff and everything around it. And the the chaff would blow away in the wind and the grain, which was heavier, would fall to the ground. And so this is how they separated the wheat out. If you're a farmer, maybe you're glad. That's not how you have to do it anymore these days. But it was a lot of work, right? But Gideon's doing this. He's supposed to be up on top of a hill. But because the Midianites and their oppression, he's down in a, a wine press, which is down in a hole in the ground. Kind of a difficult job to separate the grain from the chaff. I don't know how it was going, but it's all he could do because he knew that if the Midianites found out about it, they'd come and steal the grain. And so here he is hiding out, afraid, scared for his life. And the angel of the Lord says, you're a mighty hero, Gideon. God's ready to do something. Sometimes we can get so focused on the world around us, the oppression that we're facing, the difficulties, the trials, that we can lose sight of what God wants to do. Can I tell you that coming out the last couple years of struggle and difficulty that we've had as a country, as a community, uh, it seems like a lot of stuff's coming to the surface. A lot of things that have been bubbling under the surface for a while are just bubbling up and, and it's, uh, it's creating a lot of mess 
for a lot of us, it's like, man, what's going on? And all of a sudden things that were kind of, we were surviving and doing, our, the things we were looking to to cope with, all of a sudden we can't do that anymore. And, and we've got to come clean about it. And I've been seeing that happen in our church and, and all over the place. And it's like, all of a sudden there's a mess. But you know what? That's when God begins to do miracles. He wants to bring healing, as I said, into our lives. And when we're living with hidden stuff, when we're coping, we're not living in his power. We're not walking in his strength. And so sometimes you might be in the middle of a mess, but can I tell you that that is where God does miracles. Don't be discouraged by the mess. I think God wants to do something, something really amazing in our world. Uh, I know a lot of people are praying that Jesus would come back because things are so bad, you know, and I get that. But I also know that this isn't the first time in the history of the world where things have been really bad. <laughs> you don't have to look far back into history to see that things have been really bad before, even in this country. People aren't following God. Nobody's going to church. Nobody's following Jesus. They're getting worse and worse. Their immorality is just growing, right? And yet oftentimes that's right before there's a great awakening or there's a revival. And so I know, regardless of whether Jesus is going to come back soon, which I pray he does, right there with you, if that's where you're at, or if God wants to bring revival to our country, either way, I know the right thing to do for us is to get right with God, right? To put our trust back in him, to get our focus back on him, to reassert um, ourselves to the areas that matter when it comes to our spiritual life and our walk with God. Gideon was a mighty hero, as God said he was, but only if Gideon would trust in God. Only if God would be allowed to do the work. I know when um, Mary and I, I told you a little bit of our story, but we lived in Nebraska for quite a while when we were first um, married, and uh, we spent a short amount of time um, kind of right around 1999, 2000, 2001 in McCook. And, and we saw God do some amazing things there. I mean, we worked with some other youth pastors in that community. I saw a community-wide youth group rise up and just hundreds and hundreds of kids come to this ministry over a couple of years and preach the gospel. It was an exciting time. And I know there's been exciting times uh, in this region too, even how this church came about and a movement of God, people getting saved and so much happening. But you know, then we moved away and God called us to some other work. And I'll be honest, it was hard. We didn't see a lot get produced from those years working in the cities and working in places that were hard. So I don't know what happened here in Nebraska while we were gone. I just know I hear about things maybe more in the past where God's at work. Remember Promise Keepers? Man, that was exciting. Men from all over the place, millions of men getting together to worship God filling up football stadiums with Christian men. That was exciting. I don't know, I'm ready to see God do something big again, to move in our country. God always starts with his people. He gets his people right with him. Gideon needed an adjustment in his attitude. He needed to see God and the power of God again instead of just his situation and circumstances. God filled Gideon with his spirit. He empowered him to do the work that he was going to do. He said, Gideon, I'm going to lead you to get victory over the Midianites. 
Now, there was probably 150,000 Midianites that had gathered at this time and were consuming all the Israelites' resources. It was a large force, insurmountable. They had weapons. They had swords, advanced technology, as we usually find in these stories. And the Israelites were in a tough spot. And in human terms, there would have been no way they could have gained the victory. But God said, Gideon, you're a mighty hero, and I need you to do some work for me. And the first thing I need you to do is there's a temple or there's a, um, an altar to Baal or Baal. is the false god, and there's an Asherah pole right in your village. And I need you to go destroy those and set up an altar to me, to the one true God, and offer a bull as a sacrifice on that altar. And Gideon said, all right, God, I know that you're here. I know that you're calling me. And so with, he mounted up all the courage he could muster and he went and got 10 servants from his dad's uh, household or their employees and they went to break down the altar to Baal and to cut down the Asherah pole. And with, uh, as a courageous, mighty hero, they went in the middle of the night <laughs> to do this work, right? <laughs> they went and did it. At least they accomplished it. See, um, sadly, Gideon knew that the community would not respond favorably to him breaking down their places of worship, no matter how much of an abomination they were. And so, yes, he did it at night. And maybe that wasn't the most courageous way to do it, but he did it. And of course, the next morning, the, the people in the village got, or in his uh, clan got a little unhappy with him. And a mob came uh, to try to find him. And fortunately, his dad had some strength of character. He stood up to the mob. He said, listen, if this Baal is real, well, he can defend himself. How about if we let him do his dirty work and find uh, this kid you're saying is my son that did this horrible thing. And so his dad stood up to the mob and dispersed them and then gave Gideon the courage to continue. And God said, you're gonna raise up an army. I need you to blow a ram's horn, which was the call to war and gather some troops to fight the Midianites. And so Gideon did this. About 32,000 men responded from several tribes. And Gideon, still struggling with the courage to believe that he could accomplish this, that God was really going to go before them and give them the victory. Gideon said, um, and this is probably the part you've heard about in his story, but he has a little test for God. He asked God uh, to um, prove to him that God's really with them. And so he takes a little chunk of um, lamb's hide, okay, but still had the wool on it, called a fleece. And he said, God, I'm going to lay this out on the ground. And I'm asking you, if you're really with us, would you give me this sign? Would you make in the morning, would you cause the fleece to be wet with the dew and cause the ground to be dry? Now, I'll be honest, if I'm Gideon and I need a sign from God, I might ask for something just a little bit bigger. I don't know. But this is what he needed. <laughs> so he puts out the fleece, and sure enough, in the morning, God works with Gideon. He humors him, and the fleece is wet, and the ground is dry. And Gideon said, respectfully, God, could we just do this one more time? I just, I just need to know sure, for sure you're with me. Could we do it the opposite way tomorrow morning and make the fleece dry and the ground wet? And so God did that for him. You know, uh, Gideon's been criticized by some, I know through my lifetime, as I've heard him preach about for testing God. You know, we're told not to test God. And, 
And Gideon seems to do that. And I find it interesting for some people in the Bible when they test God or, you know, kind of question God at all, man, they're reprimanded. In fact, they're punished for it, you know? Um, And so that happens, but Gideon doesn't get that response. God works with him. And I think God doesn't ever contradict himself, but God knows that we're all different and that we all need different things in order for us to gain the confidence to follow him and stand up for him. And so I kind of find encouraging that God worked with Gideon. I said, okay, Gideon, I'll, I'll give you what you need. I know this is a tough task and I know how you're wired. I know I'm asking a lot from a guy that isn't really wired to be a military leader and to go out to war. And so I'll give you that little bit of extra courage that you need so that you can do the job. And Gideon, because of God working with him, decides to trust God and step out in faith. I know that this is true for Gideon. It's true for all of us. In order to win the battle that you face, you must act in faith. It's the only way that you're going to win the battle, the battles that really matter. Judges chapter 7, 7 and 8 says, The Lord told Gideon with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns from the other warriors and sent them home, but he kept the 300 with him. I know the Spartans had 300, okay, but this is the original 300 with Gideon. And uh, with the 32,000 men that showed up, God said, that's too many. If you have that many, you're going to take the credit. The Israelites will believe they accomplished this. So you need to send a bunch of them home. So ask them, tell them this, anybody that's scared, that's afraid of this, that wants to go home, you know, go home to mama, then uh, let them go. And so Gideon says, all right, anybody scared, anybody doesn't want to be here, go home. So uh, (laughs) 22,000 headed home of the 32,000. So That had to give him a lot of confidence in his uh, country and the men behind him. But anyway, that's what God wanted. And so he, uh, God said, that's still too many. 10,000 is still too many. So I'm going to do a drinking test. And I've heard people analyze this. I I I don't know. It just seems like a way God separates people. But um, he said, go get a drink, take them down to the water. And the guys that, that kneel down and stick their face in the water to drink, send them all home. The, the ones that just kneel down like this and scoop up the water in their hand and drink, keep them. And so this took um, most of the 10,000, eliminated them and left him with 300. And God said, now that's the right amount. Now when I win the victory for you, Israel's going to know that I'm the one that did it. And so Gideon arms his troops with a torch inside of a jar, a clay jar. And then he gives them a ram's horn, which is like a trumpet. And they surround the Midianite camp at night. And around midnight, when the change of guard happened, Gideon led by smashing the jar so the torch was visible and blowing the horn. And so all 300 men that surrounded the Midianites did the same thing. And 150,000 plus were terrified by these 300. And they began to act erratically. They were confused. They started to fight each other and kill each other as God said he would accomplish. And because of God's miraculous work, the Midianites, over 120,000 of them were killed that day and in the following days as the Israelites pursued them. And with a force of 300, they they demolished an entire nation. God wants to do miracles. He wants to be the one that does the miracles. 
We need to allow God, we need to ask God to do the miracles so that no one can confuse who did the job. That really it was God himself that did the work. Martin Luther said, our God, or God our Father has made all things depend on faith so that whoever has faith will have everything and whoever does not have faith will have nothing. God, we thank you for the way you work in our world and the way you work in our lives. We want to pray that you would continue to refine us, that you would continue to help us to come back to you with our hearts, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to push the things of this world, the things that encroach into our homes, into our lives, that we would resist those things. We would push those out by the power of your spirit, that we would be men and women who take a stand for you that represent you in the world we live in, the places where we live, where we work, where we play, that we could represent you, that people could know that when they are around us, they get a spiritual influence. They get someone who's serious about following God. God, we know the world needs to hear from you and you aim to have them hear from you through us. And so I pray that you would continue to work in our lives, help us to put down the sin that entangles us and press on to follow you, to be your people in a world that so desperately needs you. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.